Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within, and I'd like to start out by welcoming my guests today, Kate Sachs-Leventhal and Steve Leventhal. Our show today is about their organization called World Being, and it's inspiring global work. It used to be called Corestone, but they just recently rebranded to this wonderful name, World Being. And I want to tell you just a little bit about it, and I'm going to give a little introduction of both of them. But it is an international recognized um, nonprofit that conducts innovative in-school well-being programs to empower vulnerable and marginalized youth in low and middle um, income countries. These programs help youth to reframe their identities, unleash their potential, and transform their life trajectories. Their programming particularly focuses on gender equality and building the skills of marginalized youth, especially girls, to advocate for their rights to stay in school and resist early mar- marriage. So let me just start. I'll, ta- I'll start with Kate. So Kate serves as World Being's Chief Program Officer, where she oversees all projects, including research and programs for the for the organization. Um, Kate joined World Being in, in 2011 after working with Basic Needs Kenya um, on community mental health programming. She graduated from Harvard University with a BA in social anthropology with a focus on mental health and international development development. She received a post-bachelor certificate in counseling and psychology from the University of California at Berkeley, and she is currently pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And so Steve joined uh, World Being as Chief Executive Officer in 2008. He holds a BA in Psychology and Asian Studies from Washington University, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and an MPA with an emphasis in Organizational Psychology and Conflict Management from the Evans Schools of Public Affairs, University of Washington, Seattle. He holds a fourth degree... Black belt in in martial arts of Aikido. Oh my goodness, Steve, I had no idea. And in 2019, this is so wonderful that you received this award, the Outstanding Practitioner Award at the 2019 World Congress of Positive Psychology, awarded by annually to a practitioner who's shown outstanding excellence and impact in advancing positive psychology practices. There is so much more to say about my two guests, and you can go to our Voice America Resiliency Within page and you can read a fuller biography of each one of them. But as we are getting started today, I'm going to ask each of you what's on your mind as we're getting started today. So Kate, go first. What's on my mind? Well, I just, I can't wait to talk about all the things that that we've been learning, how it applies to my life, how we've seen it apply to other people's lives, um, and just have a really exciting conversation about well-being and and what that word really means. I think sometimes we don't dive into it um, really intensively, and I'm really excited to do that. And how about you, Steve? What's on your mind? Um, Similar to Kate, I'm uh, very excited to be here and uh, looking forward to what we talk about today. And uh, and also just put a little context. I think it was last week, unless it was the week before, I've sort of lost track of time, but I was just in New York 
the UN General Assembly and Climate Week, which is uh, uh, annual in New York City, and had a lot of conversations with with new people who are really interested and excited to learn about the role of well-being type programs in reaching the sustainable development goals. So that's that's been quite on my mind lately. Well, I'm really excited that that actually that you're talking about that. I, I recently wrote an article, um, I just submitted it actually um, day before yesterday, it's a psychology today, about um, about youth and their worry about the climate. And there was a, a study that was done by um, Dr. Hickman. I don't know if you've read it, but it um, she surveyed 10,000 children from many different countries around the world. And over 50% of them worry every single day about climate and about their future. So yeah. that's very exciting to hear that you're also involved with that through world being and, and some of your ideas about how we can mitigate the impact of, of climate change on our world population. I, I worry about our children and what we might be able to provide for them in terms of building that well-being to deal with what might be ahead for them as we're all grappling with climate change. Yes, sure. That, that. Huge issue. I'm happy to discuss it as we get into the conversation today. Okay, wonderful. Well, let's get started. Um, um, so what sparked your interest in building an or organization such as World Being? And this time I'll start with Steve first and then go to Kate. Um, that's a great excuse me, question on multiple levels, Elaine. Um, I will say that um, personally, in my own professional career, I spent most of the 1990s working in Silicon Valley sort of chasing internet startups and uh, watching a lot of my friends make it big and whatever big really means or successful financially while I kind of chased loser startup after loser startup and found myself um, really not being true to my own sort of authentic beliefs. Uh, I didn't like who I was being in my life. I didn't like myself at the workplace, um, wasn't eager to go to work, so on and so forth. And uh, I think other people have probably had similar stories as this, and I just found myself, I was going down really the complete wrong direction. Um, in 2000, I was in a major uh, rollover car accident in which, uh, I'll skip the details, but um, nearly died, but actually walked away unscathed. Um, and with a real, very strong determination that I was done with what I had been doing and that it was time to, to restart, I mean, completely restart. So I was number two guy at a startup in, in Silicon Valley, and I walked, and I, I quit. Um, my first child was born. It was a girl. I uh, basically took one look at her and held her in my arms and, and realized, ah, this is what it's all about. <laughs> this is where I felt I could make a difference in the world, as both on an individual level as a parent and also on a larger sort of community systems you know, level. I'd done a lot of work in international business. Um, really felt that that was where my where my strengths lie. Took me a few years to figure it out. I worked uh, for a couple of other uh, you know international NGOs, nonprofits. Worked in uh, Zimbabwe. Did some other kinds of work, so on and so forth. And uh, long story short, felt that um, after a few years of that, I realized that there was this big missing piece in international development, um, and that was really around. We can call it mental health, but really, really much more than just mental health or or lack of mental illness, but really focusing on well-being, resilience, um, strength-based types of programs that could really not only improve mental health, but also awaken self uh, re renewed or a different sense of self-identity, um, helping children to learn what their strengths were, 
how to navigate challenges in life and their problems, how to deal with conflict, how to have authentic conversations, how to push back against systems, as you said earlier around early marriage, which is uh, continues to be a big issue in some of the areas where we work. Um, and so that's uh, how I started in 2008. We started, I started in uh, an 800-year-old Sufi enclave in uh, Old Delhi with 100 girls. And uh, if all goes as planned, by 2026, we'll be at about 5 million. Wow. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I, I'm very um, inspired by your story. And I think, you know, many of our listeners may be sitting there going, I don't know if I'm happy with what I'm doing in my life. And sometimes not knowing how we're going to change the trajectory of our life. You know, sometimes it takes something cataclysmic, like what you described happened to you. And other times it's hearing someone like you speak about saying, oh, I don't have to keep doing what's not sustaining and not nourishing me. And who knows what's ahead um, when we decide to change that that life course and certainly impacting up to 5 million young women is, is amazing. So um, thank you. Well, I will say, I'd love to say I had a plan, um, but I didn't. Well, you think <laughs> so, you know, I've interviewed you know, a lot of people. I think, I think a lot of people don't have a plan is that right. they just decide to do and follow what they love and the plan unfolds. That's what I've right. noticed that's happened with a lot of social entrepreneurs, which I would. Well, I, I, yeah. And I, I mean, I've been asked this question many times about like, how did you, how did, <laughs> did you know? I didn't know. I did know what I didn't want to do, and I did know what I wanted to take a stand for. That was much more of an internal process. So then when things started coming at me going forwards, I knew I was on the path, and it didn't really matter. And a lot of things blew up. My first marriage blew up. I lost a lot of money. I went through massive, massive changes. I was a single dad for many years. It was very, very challenging. But it really, once you take that stand, the doors do open, and uh, it's an opportunity to kind of stand with your own beliefs and, and say, you know, and to recognize them, have the courage to go through them, find out what you're made of. Yeah. All right. So now, Kate, boy, that's that's a really amazing story to follow up with. But I also well, all of that story, let me just say, was all yeah. a prelude to the most wonderful day of my life, which is when I met Kate. Oh, my goodness. So that was like, oh, so you you actually have the same last name, which means you are together. I love that. All right. The We're day married. Yes. <laughs> we didn't share that at the beginning. I'm glad that we brought that into the conversation. So, um, so well, we met through work. Yeah, you met through work. Did you meet in Kenya? No, actually. Yeah, we 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 met in California, actually. So uh, shall I tell my side of it? And then, you know, we'll yes, see how Steve and yes. I we'll came tell together. Your side of it see how the intersections <laughs> happened. I think I would love to know that. I'm sure our listeners are going, well, how did that? How did they hook up? How did that happen? Yes. And how yeah. did they manage to work together? <laughs> Well, you know what? I feel like I, I always say this, you know, I when when we met and we found out that we shared just so many passions and so much of our vision of what we wanted to do in the world and what we cared about. I mean, how can you not marry that person? You know what I mean? <laughs> so whatever you said were the right things, Steve, that you said the right things that she was also interested in. Ah, okay. There you go. I left out all the bad stuff. I left out all the bad stuff. 
<laughs> no, no. But in any case, I mean, my story, I suppose, you know, it really just starts with my own feeling of of a real, like, I've, I've really only ever known one thing very, very deeply about myself. And that is that I just truly love people. Like, I, I really have this huge love for humanity and meeting people and the uniqueness of every individual. And I just have this real desire for somehow for everyone to be well. And I bet there are a lot of listeners out there who are relating and saying, wow, like, I also have a really, really big love for humanity. So, you know, I share that with you, um, listeners. And so um, it early in my career for for this for that reason, you know, I, I wound up studying anthropology because it was really a way for me to travel, to meet all sorts of people, to talk to people and, you know, say that this was work, <laughs> which was wonderful because it was really just about, you know, feeding my soul and about feeding, uh, you know, my wish and and desire to, to learn more about people and, and to connect with people. Meanwhile, I had um, a very, very close family member who was struggling with some really significant mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Um, had made a number of suicide attempts. Was in rehab. It was um, a really, really difficult time um, for me. It was a difficult time for my family, and we had so many resources. You know, we had access to so many resources, and yet it was still an impossible situation, right? There was sort of, it felt like there was nothing that could be done from our side. It was just sort of the luck of the draw was, was this person going to recover or not? So, you know, fast forward to the end of that story, you know, she is doing really, really well right now. Um, and, you know, it has been clean for a number of years and so forth. So luckily we, we had that experience, which is great. But I really started to feel like, you know, what would happen if I was in a different sort of situation? You know, what would happen if I was living somewhere in a different country? What would happen if I didn't have all of these resources at my fingertips? And also, what would are there resources out there that we don't even know about here in the States, you know, from where I was sitting? Like, are there traditional ways of doing things? Are there strengths out there that we really could be drawing from that we just don't know about? And so I got so into what it means to be well and how people support one another to be well um, in low and middle income country settings. Um, and I wound up traveling, as you mentioned, Elaine, I was in Kenya for some time. Um, and, you know, I got really, really passionate about this. Um, and while I was there, though, I really started to feel like the current models that we had, the current knowledge that we had, even if we're sharing that with one another, it was just never going to be able to meet the massive need for well-being work, for mental health work, right? And what we really needed to do, rather than focus so much on treatment, which is essentially where we were and where I was working at the time, is to work much more on promotion, on prevention, on what does it mean for every single living being in this world to have access to the tools of well-being and to be well, right? And so, you know, essentially, can we repair the broken dam rather than just pulling people out of the flood, 
right? And so when I came back to the States after that experience, I was really looking around and I was trying to figure out, okay, who's doing this? Who's working on prevention, on promotion, on well-being in low middle income countries? And at the time, there were very few. Um, Luckily, there's getting to be more and more, but World Being, which was at the time called the Corestone, was really one of the only ones. And essentially, I showed up at World Being's doorstep. (laughs) I showed up at Steve's doorstep. And I said, you know, this is really what I want to work on. And this is what I want to do. And, you know, the rest is history. On his doorstep, like knocked on the door and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about what you're doing. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. I was was, um, I was in India at the time. And (laughs) One of our scientific advisors uh, emailed me and said, oh, you've got to meet this young woman who just came back from Kenya and doing mental health. She's brilliant and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote her back and said, I'll do an informational interview, but I'm not hiring. Mm, famous last <laughs> wrong words. words. Wrong yeah, words. I'm words not hiring, I'm spoken. marrying. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that came much later. But, but that was yes, later. Um, oh my gosh. But yeah, that's... we met and I thought she was absolutely brilliant. And I basically said, I have no work for you. Um, I can't hire you right now, but if you give me a few months, I will. And sure enough, that worked. And then I guess about six months later, we fell in love. And a few, six months after that, we were engaged. <laughs> so, oh my, that is, go. That, that is the sweetest story. I mean, that really is and, yeah, so we've been running, uh, you know, the, the organization together, managing the or- leading the organization together, if you will, um, for, what, 10, 10, 11 years now. 12 uh, years. 12 years. 12 yeah. years. And you still like it. That's, that's, the, that's the really important thing to know, because sometimes yes, we do. work together with the person you love. It's not always easy. So I'm really glad. More and more, more and more every day. You know, before I go to the next question, though, I just have to share something with you, Kate. I actually was in Kenya in 2005. And I was at an international conference where I met amazing women from all over who were trying to end female genital mutilation. And I had the same exact feelings that are our, what we had available to help people with trauma and mental health was so limited. And some of my beginning ideas of creating the community resiliency model also came out of Kenya. I just think that was so, I we talked about name. that before, yeah. but some of those same ideas. And I thought, what, could there be that could increase well-being and mitigate the impacts of the trauma that would be accessible? And I love that we both were kind of thinking about those same things um, that came out of that beautiful country of Kenya. So, okay, I had to share that personal story, but let's get into talking about you two again. So let's, I want to have another question. So how have you seen world world beings, well-being programming impact an individual or a community and, you know, we love to hear stories. Can you give us an example of some of the young, you know, the young people that you've impacted? So, Kate, are you going to go with that one first? And yeah. we'll go with Steve. Sure. Second. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll dive into that one. Um, and if okay, I'll try to quickly share two vignettes. Um, Please, because yeah. one of them is is one that I feel like it's it's like a world being classic, if you will. <laughs> Because this is just a vignette that is repeated over and over and over and over again, because it's just so, it it just consistently is the way that when you walk into a school, how do you know it's a world being school, right? How do you know that it's a a place where world being, um, you know, has been implementing programs, for instance. So 
you know, generally overall, we frequently hear from teachers, from school administrators that, you know, one of the really hardest things in schools where we work, whether it's in Kenya or in India or Rwanda, anywhere, is being able to get kids really engaged in class. I think this may be, you know, just an issue with school everywhere in the world. Well, but, I think it's you been, know, even more so since the pandemic. Yeah. That's even more so, yes. Agreed. Yeah. And to really get kids to speak up during the class, to contribute, to feel confident. And especially in the areas where we work, this can particularly be true for girls, right? Um, and that can also form a real barrier for them because the more disengaged they get from school, you know, this can lead to dropout, this can lead to many, many different issues. Um, and, you know, essentially what's happening is teachers ask a question, they're getting silence, they're getting nervousness, or maybe it's the same set of boys who are contributing from the front row. And, you know, that's just how things are, right? And on the flip side of that, I often get to visit schools where the kids have done world being programs. And this is, you know, one of my very favorite things to do. And my favorite thing to do when I visit is this is after a program has been done right at the school is that I go into a classroom and ask, what are your strengths? Tell me, does anybody want to tell me what your strengths are? Because we do, um, one of the portions of the program is to help kids really identify what, what the strengths they have inside of them. This is a body of work called Character Strengths Out of Positive Psychology. And without fail, every single hand is shooting up. The kids are jumping out of their seats. They're shining with smiles. And they just they cannot wait to share their strengths. You know, one-on-one, -on -one they're popping up. They're saying, I'm curious. I love learning. I'm really persistent. I'm creative, right? These are just not the timid, uncertain kids from before. They've got this shining power about them. And that's, you know, one of the major differences that we see in schools. And teachers tell us that this also spills over into the classroom as well, right? That they've, it is no longer that they're trying to get the girls to speak up. It's more like, okay, how do we manage all the people who want to talk, which is great. Um, and so I'll just also add what this can look like for an individual, because I think that's also really important to spotlight, right? You know, what does having this kind of power and excitement and knowing your strengths and knowing your self-worth look like? You know, it it can look like many different things, but I'll just relay one story about an individual that I find really, really inspiring. And I think it it just gives a really good bit of insight um, into what it, you know, what kind of effect it can have on individuals' lives. So this is one girl who attended um, Youth First, which is one of our programs that we do um, within schools. And this was in Bihar in India, which is one of India's um, poorest states, also an area with a lot of gender discrimination, um, a lot of early marriage, um, even though it is illegal there, it's still a, a practice. Um, and she went to youth first. She did all the sessions. Um, this was, she was in middle school at the time. These are sessions about understanding her strengths, her emotions, how to manage these, how to find out what's meaningful to her, you know, what her goals are for her life, how to attain them, how to problem solve when things don't go her way, how to communicate assertively. That's what is in the youth first program and what's in a lot of our programs. 
So after that time, really, really terribly, she actually faced a set of sexual assaults. And these, this was from another boy um, in her school. And that really led her parents to take her out of school um, to essentially say, okay, this is essentially for your own protection. Um, we need to take you out of school. And once a girl is out of school, the next thing to do is often to talk about marriage. Okay, so, you know, when are we going to get you married, for instance? Um, and at the time, you know, it took some time. It wasn't immediate, but she really told us later that she really remembered making a set of goals for herself during youth first. She discovered her own strength and she was really determined to make these happen no matter what messages she was receiving, what systems and structures appeared in her way. And one of the major things she really took from this was this deep sense of self-worth. And so what she really wanted to do in life actually was to become a teacher. Um, and this didn't happen overnight, but she is sort of little by little found small ways to advocate to her parents to get back to school, found ways to get support from her friends and peers and others. And she eventually did go back to school. And seven years later, she became a teacher. And she's now one of the loudest and most confident advocates for well-being for youth that we have ever met. And so that's just one of the one of the stories um, that we have seen that really shows how well-being can change a trajectory of a life. Well, that's really inspiring. And I mean, I think it's so important what you're doing because that little nectar of well-being and how she was able to tap into those strengths that you cultivated by your programming, we can really definitely say it changed the entire trajectory of her life. Um, so we, we just have a, um, a couple of minutes before we're going to take our break, but I think Steve, maybe can you, um, um, share with our listeners as people are hearing Kate's amazing story, can you share the, um, your website where people can, can start to start looking at how to find out about your programming. And then we're going to take a, a small break and we'll come back where we're going to have you talk. Uh, I would love for you to share one of your experiences as well. Sure. Uh, our website is worldbeing.org. Uh, on the website, you can see, uh, find a number of videos and testimonials similar to the stories that uh, Kate has just told. We're also very research-based. We've done gold standard of uh, research and randomized control trials. We're well-published thanks to Kate and our research team. And so you can also, for those who are more scientifically minded, um, you'll find a number of published papers in scientific journals there as well. Um, yeah, so I say that's, uh, you can also find us on all social media. And of course, there's a, um, a very large donate button if you're interested in that on our website. We are a nonprofit. We are fully funded by um, philanthropic, um, you know, donations uh, and uh, grants. So um, please have a look and appreciate your support. And I, I think it's really important too. I just want to emphasize um, coming from a nonprofit myself, even a small donation, um, it really means something. Um, what we can do with a small do donation when we're going into other countries can be uh, have a wider reach than you might think. Yeah. So I really want to encourage you to to hit that donate button on <laughs> worldbeing.org's uh, website so that um, you can also be part of you know the um, of creating change in the world. And I think that we may not be the ones that travel to those other countries, but we can certainly help those who do to bring this kind of strength-based well-being programs 
And because, you know, who knows, maybe that young girl will be the prime minister one day. We don't know that when we change someone's lives, right? And how much, you know, uh, energy that she has and how the lives that she's going to be changing to. A woman woman I trained in the slums of a city called Surat in Gujarat was barely functionally literate. I trained her in 2011. And I think it was last year, the year before she ran for political office. <laughs> well, oh my gosh, one person there you I, go. got chills. I got chills as you as you <laughs> shared that story. So we will be back in just a few moments and we will continue this amazing conversation with, with Kate and Steve Leventhal as they share more of their programming. And I'm really going to be interested in some of the hows and the nuts and bolts about what you do. Um, that will be, I think, will be very interesting conversation as we come back from the break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karis book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Kate Sachs Leventhal and Steve Leventhal, and they're talking about the wonderful organization that they're involved with called World Being. And we've just been hearing some very inspired stories of how their programming is changing the life of of children and young women in the world. And Steve, I wanted to see if there was another story that you want want to share. I mean, you shared one right when we were um, going to break, which was very inspiring. But I was talking to you when we uh, during the break about 
what you what you did for her was was really helping her to understand her strengths. Can you say that a little? Can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, I was just uh, saying to our Facebook Live audience, and I'll I'll share in a little bit more detail. So um, after starting with one hundred girls in two thousand nine, uh, I met a guy who had uh, who himself was uh, was called a Dalit in India. So it's, which is what we would call the untouchable caste, lowest caste. Um, and he invited me to a city called Surat, which is in the state of Gujarat, um, which is actually a very wealthy city, but at the time had somewhere between 500 to 1,000 slums or so um, in the city, and invited me to come and, and uh, train up girls in the slums. And so we put together a small, very community-based uh, kind of trial, 1,000 girls, I trained maybe 75 to 100 women from the slums themselves, most of whom were just barely functionally literate, um, to facilitate the program. So it was basically a one hour per week program for the girls to attend and for these women to facilitate and take them through. And, and the content was similar to what Kate said that, you know, mentioned earlier that we do today around identifying your strengths and building your emotional intelligence and how to set goals and communicate and so on and so forth. Anyway, one of the women that I trained was a woman named Asha, um, which translates as hope, uh, which is fitting enough. And um, she, I, I don't know if I want to share the, the whole story publicly because I don't really have permission to, but came from, came from a very abusive marriage. Let me just put it that way. Um, and yet was one of the leaders of women in, in the slums. And uh, anyway, so we I trained her up and uh, we used to have some wonderful experiences together where we would just sit on a stoop in the slums and drink tea together and couldn't say a word because she didn't know any English and I certainly didn't know Hindi or, or any of the dialects that she spoke. I and mean, we would just sit there and enjoy each other's company. And um, long story short, uh, this friend who originally invited me over uh, sent me a photo, uh, maybe it's about 18 months ago or so, of her uh, and she was running for political office and had secured housing for herself outside of the slums and uh, was dressed in this very fancy you know, clothes with all these men sort of bowing sort of paying obeisance to her when normally of course it would be the other way around so she had become quite a strong political figure she didn't win but who cares um the the fact is that she had really really found bad. her power and continues to find her power yeah extraordinary I mean, woman always yeah. kind of to me wondrous you know you change the one and that can lead to changing the many and it certainly yeah. sounds that that is exactly what you have been doing in the that, world. that's a lot of our you know for lack of a better word, kind of philosophy and our approach. Some people call it the butterfly effect, right? <laughs> the, the butterflies start, you know, one start to flutter, and then that causes a storm on the other side of the, of, of the world, and uh, also known as the multiplier effect. And we really, we really try to create this linkage. That's why we we renamed as world being. That's this notion of inner well being being the foundation for global well being. Inner inner well being being the foundation for global well being, and yeah. that is. If you think about it, Elaine, that is a idea, if you will, that has been around since the early sages. <laughs> Every great philosophy, religion, so on, has said it for thousands of years, if not more. And yet the systems around us, you know, many of them, of course, are, are broken. And we spend a lot of money and a lot of attention on the systems themselves trying to rectify the systems themselves, but not so much that linkage between the individual and the system. 
And so what we're trying to do really is to focus in on the individual well-being as a means a means towards greater change. Yeah. Well, and I, and I love, I, you know, I have the same philosophy, you know, in our Trauma Resource Institute and our community resiliency model. And I think it's, it's so important because if we don't help that individual and that, you know, how does one individual, but you're changing more than that. And the systems, as you say, can be so broken. And, and sometimes they have to be turned upside down. And how do we turn them upside down if we don't do the kinds of things about a, a, a woman looking at herself differently, who may yeah. not have thought that she had any power, that became empowered by focusing on the, the, the innate strengths that she had and how she could actualize those in the world. And, you know, I see what you're doing. I mean, I'm just excited about what you're doing because that can change not only her family, and her community, but it can change your country. I mean, and I don't think that's a lofty idea. I think it's a possible idea. I think we, we all share that. So that kind of gets me into another question. Can you share a little bit about um, uh, some of the work that um, your research is showing? Because I know many of us say, oh, well, it has to be evidence-based for it to really be real. Even though we go, oh, we've got the best stories. The stories to me are what enliven me. But I know that sometimes the funders want to know well, give me the hard facts. How are you? How many people are you really helping? So sure. I don't know what of you want. I think I would love to, for Kate to take that question, but I would love to set it up if you if you don't mind. Sure, go ahead. Context, go, because go right I think ahead. it'll it'll help even more to understand what Kate's achievements have been in in this area, because um, it's really quite extraordinary, and I have no talents when it comes to research whatsoever. But what That's I wanted to say that your is, husband is giving you so many accolades. I'm here she for it. This is great. Hey, let's go. I'll take it. <laughs> no, it's really you know, for our whole team. Yeah. Well, true. But anyway, <laughs> when I started, um, you know, before I met Kate, if I talked to any kind of a funder, large funder, small funder, whatever, and talked about mental health in the context of development, I, I can't tell you how many times I had the, the door slammed to my face, literally. And so there were a couple of things that I recognized up front. One was, if we do this work in the way that we're thinking about doing it, it's going to be pretty pioneering. And that means we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And it also means that we need to build the evidence base for the work. And when you build the evidence base, for those who not don't maybe aren't familiar with what that means, it's like really building the scientific methods and documenting that and sharing that that it became really important to us that whether we were succeeding or failing or something worked or something didn't, we needed to be transparent about all of it because that's how you learn and that's how you share that learning and that's how you build, build the base. And one of the things that I found that was so arrogant around the, let's just call it the international development sector, because if you're not familiar with this work, it really is a sector. All the UN agencies, all the thousands and thousands of international NGOs and nonprofits and so on. It's a sector. It's a multi-billion dollar sector that does really extraordinary work that most people don't know about. It's also often really hampered by really ineffective funding because the funding gets all mixed and pushed all over the place. It's disparate. It's not the funders don't even often talk to them to each other well, so on and so forth. So what I, what I found was the sector was really good at looking at metrics around the tangible things. How many schools have we built? How many roads have we built? How many teachers have we trained? And so on and so forth. But really 
at the time, and it's it has changed a lot, thank, thankfully, at the time, really bad, like looking at the intangible. So what do you mean by mental health? What do you mean by transforming a person's self-identity? It's certainly not us transforming their identity. It's the work that they do, right? It's working in partnership with local communities and local partners and just providing the tools for people to discover themselves. This is not a top-down approach. It's not a Western versus Eastern. It's not a North versus South. It's just about sort of universal values and universal skills that benefit everybody. And it's up to uh, people themselves to do the work and figure out whether it helps them or not. You know, and so Steve, when you I take all that, for a second, I want to just underscore what you just said. Having traveled internationally, as you all have done, there are many organizations that go in with top-down approaches, and they don't have the approach that you're talking about, because then you are not you're you're really not acknowledging the strengths that that community has, exactly. That individual has, exactly, and that so just like tools that, for them to bring out the strengths exactly. that they already have in there in their community. They exactly. empower them to know what's already true inside of them. I just wanted to. Right. I love that you do that. Okay, continue. Thank just, you. So all of that is to say, when you look at all of that, and it's kind of amorphous, and you're trying to figure it out, there's no evidence base and so on. What do you do? You turn to Kate. (laughs) And Kate and team research team started (laughs) to figure out out exactly how do we do that. Yeah, so I'm going to turn that over to Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that that setup. I feel like I should should have many more answers than I do. Um, But no, I think that that's, I think those points are really important that I do think that having a mix of metrics that really are tangible, as well as ways to measure things that are intangible, but hey, actually it is possible to measure them. I think having that mix is really, really important. And so that's what we've wound up doing. And so, you know, just to highlight, you know, I'll say a couple of different things that we have found through our research. Um, and and it really is, like I said, I, I think there's sort of di- different things that resonate with different people. And also what's really interesting, as I think you heard through the stories that we've been telling, what it means to be well for one person may look totally different than it does for another person. So it's very, very hard to go and say, okay, we're going to measure sort of on average <laughs> what well-being changes there have been, because it might be in so many different life domains for people, right? But uh, nonetheless, all those disclaimers notwithstanding, um, I'll just you know mention a couple of, of stats from our programs. So you know we've found that when kids go through our programs, they're actually more than twice as likely to have a life goal that they're working towards versus kids who have not gone through the programs and they're actually two and a half times better at handling challenges at school and three and a half times more likely to believe actually that sexual harassment is not a girl's fault and they're actually nearly seven times more likely to attend school while they're menstruating so actually in the places where we work um, for girls it can be um frowned upon or taboo or or lots of different um, pieces go into not attending school. It's also pieces about water access and safe spaces for girls at school. Yet, just having this access to spaces that are promoting well-being and these safe spaces at school really has made a difference in, as I said, this kind of tangible indicator of actually being so, at school. So Kate, that's really a paradigm shift for, for not only the, the girls, but for the administrators of the school. 
Because that's yeah. something that I've seen that can really exist, even not even having sanitary napkins in order to be able to go to school. So these are kinds of the trajectories that starts to change action items, I imagine, is yeah. what helps keep the, sk- the kids in school, the girls in school when they're menstruating. I mean, and I think the girls, excuse yeah. me, Elaine, just to add to that, and the girls becoming self-confident enough and so on to raise their voice to the government yes. or to the school and advocate for sanitary napkins and, and so on to be available to them uh, and advocate for their rights, you know, to stay in school. Yeah, we've had many instances of that. But, so um, this is about because I really want to emphasize this is also about system change. When you right. impact this one person, you empower them, it can actually have this effect of changing a whole system. Anyway, had to add that, Kate, go ahead. <laughs> you might have already been going down that way. But that, I mean, is, <laughs> that is exactly right, Elaine, and that's, that's what we're hoping for. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just on that um, topic of systems change, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about this forever, but uh, people often ask us, okay, do you work with individuals or do you work with systems? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> and, and we say, yes. We do, as in both, it's a yes, right? Because I think what we often forget is what are systems made of, right? Or who created the systems? Who has the power to change the systems? It's individuals, yes, right? And so there's no, there's no reason, well, I would say there's, you're not going to get where you want to go by sort of targeting a faceless system, right? Of sort of some mechanistic idea of why things are the way they are, right? And why oppression exists and why, you know, gender disparities are there and et cetera. It's really about the people. It's about the people within the system. It's about the people who are either perpetuating that or not inadvertently. It's about the people who have the power to make changes for themselves, for others. I mean, it's it's all people, it's all individuals. And so we really believe that that's where you have to start. And we call this our inside out approach, right? It's kind of the idea of like, well, how do you change a system? You start from the inside out. How do you change a person? You start from the inside out. And so when you were designing the metrics and what you were going to evaluate, were you was that one of the leading or maybe one of the many things that you were thinking about? What did you need to discover in order to, for people to really truly understand what you were doing and the implications? I think, yeah, I, th- I think that's a really great question and a, and a great point because I do think that we really try to look both individually as well as, okay, what are some of the metrics or some of the indicators that would show us that, hey, actually we are changing the system as well. So for example, you know, that piece about attending school during menstruation, um, that's something that we look at. Uh, Another piece that really does have to do with the system is what we often dive into about looking at changes for teachers themselves, because they are, you know, hugely important actors within, literally, it's called an education system, (laughs) right? And they have so much impact on kids' lives, and it can be great impact or it can be not great impact. And so the programs that we do really work within that education system to transform the actors themselves, right? To transform teachers, to transform administrators, et cetera, towards how they can best 
support well-being for kids. So essentially we're training people within, for instance, government education systems, and then they're training teachers, and then they do the program with their students. And we find changes um, as well for the teachers themselves, right? We find that they're more engaged with students, we measure some real concrete differences. For instance, one thing we found recently is that teachers who've been trained in these well-being skills, they actually spend an average of two and a half hours more per month just checking students' homework. And that's just, just one thing, one indicator um, versus teachers who haven't been trained in well-being, right? Um, they're 22% less likely to use punitive discipline strategies with their students and their own burnout decreases, their own resilience, their own mental health increases. We've had teachers come up to us after trainings and say, thank you for saving my marriage. And we're like, wait, that was not what this was supposed to be about, but great, like this is fabulous. You know, like well-being training is so, it can be important for so many things. Well, can I ask you, um, do you ever go into schools and have programs for the parents? I mean, if you have the teachers, you have the children, are you able to do something with the parents or the caregivers or not? You know, that's an area where we're really interested to move, and we have not actually done that in combination with our school programs yet, but it is absolutely a conversation. And this is one of the areas where we're really trying to partner with um, those who really understand locally what what it means for parents to be involved, what the challenges and what the barriers would be for them to be involved, and how to really design something for them. So I would so, say that that's something on the horizon. Um, and sorry, just one other point, Steve, that we have done programs that are for parents um, of especially of younger kids, of kids ages zero to five. Um, as a mom of young kids myself, I know that's a time where we could all use a little bit of extra support. Yes. Um, and so we have definitely done this with parents before. It's just a question of how to, you know, the logistics of making it um, work with within the realities of, of people's lives in the areas where we work. Well, and I imagine, yeah. I mean, when you're training teachers, you're also training parents because many of the of course, exactly. our parents. So in, th in that respect, Steve, you had yeah. something you wanted to add to this. Yeah, I was just going to add, well, to your last point, yes, we've had teach many teachers come back with, oh, you know, I've taken the skills that I learned from this program for the schools, and I've actually brought this home, and it has really changed the dynamic in my family and how I parent and my dynamic with my, with my partner and so on and so forth. <laughs> in terms of parents, um, we have done many like short kind of sensitization type of trainings. Maybe they're two hours where you call the parents to the school and those kinds of things. The challenge that we face right now is we're really trying to scale at very, very large institutions. So using the example of Bihar, India, for example, we have an agreement with the government where the program is being scaled to 3.5 million children a year, over 40,000 school teachers that need to be trained. Uh, it's something like 35,000 schools. This will obviously take a number of years to, to, to reach you know, full scale. But the point being that adding in a component of how to do this with parents in some way that's equally scalable and systematic, which isn't costing tons of donor money and all those kinds of things, we're trying to figure that out. And, and I would say, I'd be the first to say, I think it's a weak, weak link in our work um, because 
one of the, the risks of this kind of work is if you put too much of an emphasis on the child to change things, which of course is not fair, right? And so you really have to work from multiple angles with the system administrators and the school teachers and the parents and so on and so forth so that um, so that, that that isn't an undue burden on the child. Um, Stephen, Kate, this has been an incredibly interesting conversation, and I feel like we've only gotten one third through what I want to ask you about. I am, I'm going to ask you right now, will you come back? And maybe I can schedule you, at, you know, after the first of the year, because we, I want to get to the programming that, well, you know, what are some of the well-being practices that we could integrate into the activities of daily living? And I think that we've gotten a great introduction and, and I, I know my listeners are going to want more from both of you. So That's very um, sweet of you, of course. We well, love to. Okay, great. I'm this. I'm so excited that you have agreed to. Of course, I'm asking you on on the air. <laughs> coming, oh no, I'm not coming back. No, well, it's okay. on the record now. Okay, so. You're on the record. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just wondering in the in the couple of minutes we have left, if you can each give just a parting, you know, thought about what you would like to live our, uh, leave our our listeners with. So you first, Kate. Kate. Sure, sure. I mean, I'd I'd love to actually ask listeners to think, do a little thought experiment, I guess, for yourself. And just think about what you think the world would be like if every single person, every single person you met, every single person you saw on the news, every single person you haven't had the pleasure to meet yet, but everyone has had access to the tools that can support their own well-being. Mm. What would be different in the world? What would change for individuals, for systems, for our global society? What would change for you if you had access to those tools? So I just want to leave you with that. A wonderful question. Okay, in one minute or less, Steve, a party sure. from you. I'm going I'm to go with a, a very paraphrased quote, but I love this and I've been thinking about it so much. It's from the uh, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, a mm-hmm. Vietnamese monk, Buddhist monk who, who passed away, I guess, about a year or so ago. Um, and this is not his exact words, but it's close enough. Work with urgency with the patience of a thousand years, which I love because the problems are right here in front of us and we need to address them. And at the same time, we need to understand they're really more than a thousand years old. They're very, very old. They've been around since humans have been around. Um, So you need to work with cognizance, consciousness of of both. And I wanna remind our our listeners that they can go to worldbeing.org and find out more about their amazing work and also to donate. And I also always leave with this question. I think that Kate and Steve are demonstrating in real time what else is true in the world. We can focus on the suffering. We can know that it's there, but there's also the strength and the well-being that exists in all humanity. And when we start asking the questions, people can answer. And then who knows what is possible for them? So I just want to say goodbye for Resiliency Within. This is Elaine miller Karras with a deep bow to her guests today, to Kate and Steve. And I, would, I want to say one more thing, is that you are doing this with such compassion and empathy and respect. And I have just hats off to you. And I know that you'll continue to be successful. And World Being is a wonderful, wonderful name. I only wish I would have thought of it. Goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you Elaine. Thanks to all listeners. Yeah, thank you. Elaine Miller Kara signing off for Resiliency Within. Mm-hmm.
Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.